So March has rolled around and there's a fresh batch of new sports science students that are eager and awaiting their new three-year degree. As a bunch of seasoned veterans in the university system, we thought we'd take the time to sit down and discuss the pitfalls and some of the things that we wish we knew when our university degree started many years ago now. So in today's Deakheads podcast, we're going to discuss everything in terms of sports science at the tertiary and university level. As always, I'm joined by Sean Jessamine and Damon Bednarski. Firstly, hello to you, Sean. Hello, Rob. How are you, mate? Yeah, pretty good, Sean. Pretty good. Can't complain, mate. Always good to see your happy face down the southeast there. And, of course, we've got Damo, the man. How are you, Damo? I'm good, Rob. Uh, I hope uh, Sean is looking after you at his place today. Good hospitality there in Berwick, I hear. It's a bit of a, a, bit of a different setup today, actually. Uh, uh, Sean and I are under the same roof but in different parts of the house recording <laughs> this. So um, I apologise if, <laughs> if the connection's a bit dodgy, but nonetheless, we're powering through today, boys. Welcome welcome back to the Trix channel and the Trix podcast as well if you're listening on our audio forums. Uh, we've got a few things going on on the Trix uh, outlets at the moment. We've got Trix 180, a series of heated debates on contentious sports science and strength and conditioning topics. So go check them out if you uh, want a bit of a laugh and uh, be educated and entertained at the same time. There's a, a bit of uh, a bit of controversy within some of those uh, some of those topics. So go check them out. Got a few DIY videos as well going on there. Um, so if you want to have a bit of background info, want some practical demonstrations of a few, of a few things, and, and go have a look at them. There's some MAS yo-yos, uh, warm ups on there as well. So there's plenty of stuff to discuss and demos even debuted himself with a nice little single video there talking about some sports tech. So there's plenty going on. So make sure if you're on YouTube, subscribe and like, and if you're on the various uh, audio platforms, you get around the boys at Triax. So at the top, we discuss what this um, Deakheads podcast is. I think this is the second season and the first episode of the Deakheads podcast. So welcome back. Uh, in this one, we're going to talk all things about sports science at the tertiary university level and and some of the things we've encountered along the journey so far. So we're all recent, semi-recent sort of graduates of uh, various university degrees, and and there's a fair um, there's a fair representation among the three of us. Um, a bit of uh, different sort of things. We've got some masters and some more research based um, postgraduate stuff as well. So we're going to discuss all things um, at the university level in terms of sports science today. So might we might start actually with um, Damon and Sean, maybe going through your qualifications. So Sean, we'll start with you. If you want to give a background as to your um, tertiary education history. So I started with a Bachelor of Exercise and Sports Science at Deakin. Um, that went for three years, and as soon as those three years were up, I did an honours year. So that's more research-based. Research um, and again, that was, that was also at Deakin. Um, and then I guess not sort of directly after, but that sort of led to what I'm doing now, which is the Doctor of Physiotherapy at Melbourne. So that's sort of my background. Yes, yeah, so that's an interesting point there. So Sean sort of started in that sports science um, background as well and then has since moved on to um, another postgraduate but more towards the physiotherapy alignments as well. We might talk about that a bit later on. And then to Damo, um, over to you. You obviously had the similar start to Sean and myself. Yeah, so the same bachelors of exercise and sports science at the undergraduate level. Um, rather than going into an honours year, I went straight into a master's degree. Um, so... The majority of that was by coursework, so similar to your undergraduate course, um, but there was also a research component that I undertook as well. Um, 
So then my connection to, I guess, higher education since then, um, I actually now work at Deakin teaching into some of the undergraduate units um, in the exercise and sports science, do marking and teaching. So I'm sort of still got a foot in the door there and know what's going on for current students coming through the system now. Yeah, so that, and that's a good um, point of difference, I guess, Damo, as you're on both, you've been on both sides of the fence, essentially. You've got that sort of that uh, lecturer or sessional academic um, background as well as the, um, the basically the student as well. So your master's, uh, did you say that was at Deakin as well, the applied sports science at Deakin? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it. All right, and so then again, so for myself, a bit of self-indulgence here, but uh, similar to Sean and Damon, both uh, with the undergrad degree at Deakin, exercise sports science, and then I actually defected after that. I went to Victoria University. Um, my heart's always been out in the western suburbs of Melbourne, so I went out there to Footscray and did an honours year there, um, research, and it was was embedded within the Victorian Institute of Sport um, for the year there uh, within some of their team sport programs. And then uh, had a bit of a um, sort of like a, a year break in between, um, started at the Storm and had a bit of a year break and then launched back into a PhD uh, again out, out in VU uh, at Footscray there. Um, so... Similar to Sean with that little research aspect that I've gone now into the PhD as well. So um, as you can see, there's a bit of a, a variation in, in uh, three different um, boys here in terms of what we've actually done and our history as well. So there's a lot of um, variation with, that we are keen to talk about in this episode. So we'll get stuck into it right now. Here we go. All right, boys. So from the top, uh, I think it's important that maybe if we can sort of transform or go back towards our 18, 19-year-old selves at the start of the sports science degree. So maybe if we start and talk about our expectations of a sports science degree before we actually started. So, uh, Sean or Dave, do you want to kick us off there, right where it all started? I think for me it started at Open Day. Um, I remember going there with my mum and we were looking at the the course um, and I think it was actually – I had a pretty good idea from the outset that it wasn't going to be as easy as perhaps um, the university advertised it to be to get a job um, afterwards and how long it would actually take. Uh, I believe I don't remember who the sessional academic was, but they were there on open day and actually kind of said that you're probably not going to have a full-time job until you're at least 25. And I think at the time when you're 17 at open day, you're probably just naive and think, oh, yeah, that's you know, that's only seven years away, but um, seven years is quite a bit of time. And uh, I guess we're at 25 now and still don't have the full-time job. So I think the expectation was there going into the course that you're thinking, yep, I'm going to do this three-year degree. I walk out of that with a job like if I did an accounting degree straight into a graduate role and that's it. You don't have to do anything extra on top of that. Um, And you essentially get to pick the job that you want, but it's very much not the case. Um, I don't think the universities probably do enough to advertise that, that it's not actually as simple as um, just completing your degree and then you get a job like many other degrees. Interesting. Sean, and what you, you got similar thoughts there to Damo when you first started or what did was, you see? I was, I was probably a little bit different actually. I was um, very narrow in my visions of what I wanted to do and I think ever since year 12 I sort of thought I like sport, I really enjoyed like year 12 PE and that sort of thing and always sort of had this vision that I was going to work in professional or elite sport and, mm-hmm. you know, I'd do the degree, graduate, and then you'd, you'd get a job out of it, sort of as Damo was saying with a lot of other degrees. But 
I guess we all, I think we all quickly learned that it's not quite the reality of it. Um, and yeah, so it's, it was interesting in that how you slowly start to see things a bit differently as you get through the course and when you start to get more experience and, and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, in the, in the initial outset, I was, you know, really excited and thought, um, you know, I was probably going to be working, working with some, some sort of higher level teams and organizations um, shortly after uni. It's, it's an interesting point, like I think Sean and Dale have touched on, is that that's when you, at the end of year 12, that start of basically university journey about the, the basically the marketing and advertising you're subjected to. So Sean's dream there he touched on was the, the high-level sport, elite sport, working in that, and that's a lot of people that work, that elect to uh, enroll in sports science want to end up, that's where they want to end up. And so um, that's what universities um, target towards in terms of their marketing so what you see i remember from open day they used to list um all their alumni where they're working now and used to see all the illustrious you know, nba and nike and and all these different things and you think, geez how good's that like you know all i have to do is stay the course here i'll be half a sniff and and for me that's exactly what i thought um was just you know you go from year 12 at the end of year 12 and you get like a, an atar score or whatever it is and and like that's reward for your effort. And so you sort of think, well, that will hopefully transpire then you need that you'll get into um, what you want to get into in terms of you know, elite sport or whatnot. And I think the three of us here probably had that vision at the start, I reckon, of the journey. But um, your expectations are – I reckon the first year, though, in, in terms of expectations, I don't, I don't think that I wavered from that belief that at the end of the, at the, end of the three years that I wouldn't get an elite – job straight up i still thought that there'd be a good chance and and i think what happened in and what emphasizes that is the facilities that you actually work in in the labs and that like what deacon have deacon have great facilities i'm sure many other universities do they have all these and you do all these introductory uh, units as well so they're pretty basic and you get to use all the, the shiny gear and i think that probably um uh, exaggerated my belief that oh, yeah, I'll probably get something out of this because you know I'm using all this flash gear and it's probably going to translate. I'm doing all these cool things, but um, probably halfway through the second year, I reckon that's when I turned in terms of my expectations. I'm not sure if, whether you boys are the same there or not. Yeah, I was probably, yeah, probably um, um, not until later on as well. As when well, probably yeah. not until we started to do some sort of more professional experience when we had to volunteer places and that sort of thing, and you sort of realise that. Um, even though the industry is sort of becoming more prominent and recognised at the elite level, there's not the same job growth because unless you introduce new teams, then that's the only way for new roles to become available. Um, but otherwise, I think for the most part in Australia, probably not as much overseas, but in Australia, a lot of people within those roles sort of stay in them for a longer period of time, I think. There's less there's yeah. probably less turnover compared to overseas. So um, I think one thing that sort of stands out from what I can remember as well is that you're being told that you're not only competing against the other graduates, you're already competing against everyone else in the field as well. So if, the, if there's a job opening, there's going to be people applying from other organisations that mm. are already working, you know, that are already working there and other and people that are sort of, trying to break into that and then your new graduates as well. So it's a very saturated job market. Um, 
yeah, it probably took a while to sort of recognize that and realize mm. that was the case. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. The, the saturation as well, and you don't. So people will tell you, like people will say, "Oh, yeah, it's hard to get, hard to break into," and you think, "Oh, yeah, I'm different. I'll be right. Yeah, I work hard and all that sort of stuff." But what happens? And so masters and 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 all those sort of post grad probably aren't on the horizon. I reckon for most people until the end of second year, start of third year. And then what happens is as those expectations maybe temper, you realise, oh, it's pretty hard to get a job out of this. And then all of a sudden there's always advertising from the university to do their postgraduate degree because all of a sudden you realise, oh, I don't really have enough here to get a job straight out and I don't really want to be going backwards or seeing on my uh, behind all day. And so what happens is all of a sudden there's a bit of marking, you know, do our masters of this and you'll be, you know, you'll be better off and, and then what some people tend to do, particularly if you go through that deacon stream, is you get pushed towards the clinic, the clinical ex-phys as well. So, again, what can tend to happen with those expectations is they change more so is that the realisation of, oh, well, it's tougher than what I thought, is it, oh, well, I'll be safer if I go in the ex-phys path. Like, what do you boys sort of think about that? Mm, I'd say that I'd, a lot of people that we went to uni with, there's – there's not many left that are actually sticking it out in probably the area that we are. Um, it'd be a handful of people here and there, I think. Um, and I think that realisation, a lot of people want to be working with athletes or general population, um, which that, to be honest, there is, there's plenty of work out there. It just may not be at the level that you first thought you were going to be at. So it might not be mm. a professional level, but there's plenty of stuff out there. Like we've all got multiple roles doing different things. So there, there's clearly work out there. Um, but, yeah, the ex-phys, I think people get to that second, third year, especially when we were doing it, the ESSA stream was pretty much what everyone did um, just because it set you up to do things later on in your degree or afterwards. And so everyone's doing that ESSA stream and then they get to the end of the degree and they go, all right, well, I can just go and do clinical exercise physiology. And pretty much that majority of people that go down that stream or did when we were doing it have a job in that industry now they're working somewhere um the clinical exercise physiology side of things was probably more jobs and less people actually pursuing it at the time so um mm. yeah but i think it's at that point like you said rob where you have to weigh up you're getting into that third year of your degree and you go okay mm. well there's this funnel at the end here and you go all right which way am i going to go am i going to go to a snc uh, masters mm. or am i going to go and do a clinical exercise phys um that's probably where the majority of people went or um, they went and did physio or they dropped out and did a different de degree completely. Um, mm. There's certainly, yeah, I, I reckon the people that I know from uni, they'd be probably tops 20 people still going around in the industry, which just shows when we were in a cohort of probably three or 400 minimum. Mm. Yeah, and that's a good point there, Damo, the size of the cohort. So, um, well, the other thing you don't, you don't realise when you're, uh, trying to challenge your expectations is you only see the people you go to uni with. So you don't realise, especially in Victoria, there's VU, there's Deakin, there's ACU, there's, well, there's University of Ballarat or somewhere, I reckon, as well. I, 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 did, I, did, I did a check on it not long ago and I think there's 46 tertiary institutions in Australia that offer some form of exercise and sports science degree at the undergrad or postgrad level. Yeah, so there you go. And that's, again, there's just not, <laughs> there's just not, there's not enough professional athletes in Australia that probably channel that in terms of team sports. So um, what's interesting then is 
and some expectations for people. Some people do use that sports science degree as a stepping stone as well to the physios and all that sort of stuff. But that's generally if you're enrolling uh, in that straight after year 12, it's because your initial ATAR wasn't uh, great enough to get in directly to a physio course. So there are people who use that as a stepping stone, which is fine. But I think there's a lot of people that probably had those initial ex- expectations, such as the three of us, that we'd all be in uh, – you know, Madison Square Garden or you know, the American Airlines Arena or somewhere like that, maybe even uh, Hard Rock Stadium, Miami, uh, working with a few different teams. So, um, yeah, so I think that we all probably had the um, that initial dream at the start in terms of those expectations and quickly got um, tempered, I reckon, as the as the degree went on. So we just so we've just talked about our expectations of uh, sports science degree before we uh, enrolled or before we basically got. Um, in our case, Deakin. So maybe if we want to talk about, um, well, we just touched on how we our expectations were tempered towards the end and we realised that getting that dream job wasn't going to be as easy as what we initially thought. Do we maybe want to talk about the curriculum that we do in terms of sports science courses and whether they're setting you up for the best possible chance after you finish your degree? Because I think this is an important point. I've seen a lot of um, discussion on this on Twitter and a few other LinkedIn as well as to whether the curriculum we do actually helps us in the applied field, particularly at that elite level, which a lot of people want to get to. So maybe if you want to just channel the discussion around that first point. So Sean or Damo, if you want to kick us off on this one. Yeah, I think particularly when we were going through it, it has changed quite a bit now. Um, So having seen it from the teaching side, there's quite a bit more of a practical component involved in the course. Um, And I think there was quite a big restructure sort of, 2019 2020 so they've added in more compulsory hours and stuff like that into the degree so in um, compulsory hours so you're saying they're placement hours right yeah Being on so the there's field, yeah, doing stuff. yeah yeah so i think it's gone from when we did it, it was minimum of 140 it's up to 220 which really isn't a huge increase but it's you know it's an extra third of what they were doing essentially um in terms of practicum hours but I just think back to when we were going through it and just we did have practical experiences, but like you were saying, Rob, like it was shiny equipment using, say, like a VO2 max test. In reality, no one, even at the elite level, really uses that unless it's in a specialised sport, say for cycling or something or swimming like that where you you can do that, and it's quite expensive. So what we were learning to do there actually probably wasn't as relevant. And I've looked back on it and even going through my master's, um, I know that they they pulled out GPS units in our master's degree in the practicum week um, to use in the photo shoot, but we didn't actually turn them on or collect any data. Mm. Um, and that sort of was like, well, why did we use pre-collected data? We could have gone, out, gone outside and done a practical session, collected the data and then analysed that rather than just using um, pre-collected data. So that's something definitely... Um, from our experience, we didn't have any exposure to GPS pretty much as soon as you get into the industry as a sports scientist or a strength and conditioning coach, you need to know how to use GPS units, whether it be SPT, catapult, whatever technology you're using. But we didn't ever actually do that at uni. And I think that's something that if you go down that sporting or athletic pathway, that's super important. Um, and then there was a lot of times as well where we used technology that the professional industry and um actual people working in the industry don't use like we're using dart fish to do analysis which like you ask any practitioner and they would almost laugh at using that so i Mm. think there was there there was quite a few things 
just in terms of the way they went about it where perhaps, you know, it was the easier and cheaper way to do it um, and they could just use their the teaching structure that they'd had for previous years and just continue doing that. So I think maybe with the restructure it's got better, but for us personally I think there was a lot of things that we did that, like you said, looked really good and shiny, but when you get into it and you actually start to get a feel for the industry, it actually is probably a little bit irrelevant. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, Sean, and then what? It, what? It, like, how do you think about that, Sean? Yeah, well, I guess just touching on Damo's point, like, I don't think any of us would probably run a lab-based VO2 max test since we left uni. No. So no. it's just like, and then like, and that's, and it would have like, in all seriousness, it would have been good to get like experience doing that. But we spent like week after week after week in the labs doing those kind of tests to the mm. point where we'd roll in and we could do it you know, easy as. Um, and that, and that, that makes you feel confident as well. That makes you think like you're, mm. you're well prepared to graduate and you know what you're doing, but then you sort of, you get out there and you're like, well, I don't even need to do this. It's like doing all yeah. that, all that um, maths in high school. It's like, well, we don't actually do, we don't actually use this in the real world, do we? So um, it's, it's interesting in that sense, like more sort of, using more sort of equipment and data collection methods that are more sort of prominent in the field, whether that be at sort of elite level or even sub-elite or local level um, would have been good, I think. Um, mm. Do you have anything on that, Rob? Yeah, I agree with what the both of you said. And so initially what Sean just said about the VO2 Max, that's again, when we talk, we're speaking about expectations before, that stuff makes you feel like you're going well in terms of those VO2 stuff. But the biggest issue with the curriculum now at undergraduate level is that there's a dis complete disconnect between uh, if at the elite level what they actually do versus what's done at university, and that's always been it's always been a case. There's always a difference between researchers, academics, full time you know researchers, and practitioners that are on the field each and every day. Like there's mm. and you, know, you realise that as soon as you leave university and you, and you work and you work so work in an elite environment that it just doesn't, the things you learn just aren't either practical or they're just not applicable at all. And so, again, using GPS, um, I think I used that first time, I reckon it would have been at the VIS. I used that and that would have been, I reckon, second year uni. Um, knowing what I know now and knowing the shift towards data analytics and team sports, I feel like, um, with the uh, sports scientists in five years will basically be a data guru in Australia. I feel like there's with the wearable tech and the big data, it's only going to get bigger. So I feel like sports scientists need to basically be data engineers as well. So not having that exposure at uh, university level, given where this industry is going to go, it's basically going to follow America. So I felt that was probably a bit um, inappropriate or not inappropriate, it just wasn't done considering what you pay yeah. and, and what yeah. you should expect to get. So that was probably the first one. And the second one, I reckon I use sports code at Sandringham VFL in that would have been like early second year or whatever it was. And sports code still has been like the predominant video and like like video analysis software. At least AFL for like in the last five to ten years. I didn't even use that. I didn't even use that at Deacon. Didn't even touch. We used Canovia, which was a good one. It was a nice little free freebie. Um, again, so it got probably got shortchanged a bit there. So that's that's always frustrated me looking back now. It's the complete disconnect. And if you're listening and you're a current student or you're, and you're trying to or you're trying to get in, 
um, then I'd probably suggest that you find yourself an internship as quick as possible because that's where you're going to find out what you actually need to know because you look back now and it's unbelievable the things that we learned and thought that were um, oh, applicable. Yeah. So it's a bit disappointing, I think. That's what's disheartening as well is there's not that – like all these and, – and the thing is as well is that all these big organisations have partnerships with universities and, you know, lots of stuff and placements, but there's still a disconnect, which is just hard to hard to imagine. So, yeah. I think you made a really good point there, Rob, about how there's the difference between researchers and practitioners. So I think – those VO2 max tests and things that we were doing is actually preparing you for a pathway into research um, without advertising it it is because it, when they do testing um, at the research level, that's the type of technology that they use. Um, so they want their graduates to be able to, if they transition into that pathway, be prepared um, for that. Mm. So that's certainly um, probably the mm. divide there rather than having, you know, hands-on practical people from the industry coming in and teaching you about something that might be more relevant. It's more towards the research um, pathway, as you said. I think now too with the curriculum, it has improved a little bit in terms of the the, like the major sequences you can do. Like I, I think back to our degree and like if you're coming out as a strength and conditioning coach, if you went to Deakin, you virtually, you, you had maybe two or three units where you actually were in the gym and what you actually learnt, um, you'd learn more in the ASCA level one course over a weekend than you would in the entire three-year degree about strength and conditioning. So I think that's one thing that now they've transitioned. So there's, you know, four or five units you've got to do in a major sequence. This is at Deakin specifically. Um, but I think they have attended to that a little bit and giving students a bit more of an opportunity to specialise in a select area rather than everyone coming out with the S of specialisation like us and not kind of being a jack of all trades but master of none really mm. yeah, yeah that's... i think sorry sorry sure no the um so, so we like we talk, so we talk about like this like the issue in terms of the curriculum but what would you actually do sean so if you someone said to you like i'm gonna you you're in charge sean, of the curriculum for a sports science degree what are you doing like what are you like how would you structure it differently to what we've actually done because it's all well and good for us to talk here and say well this is wrong and this is wrong and, and that, but what? how can you actually make it better or how would we make it better? Um, uh, I, I guess it's hard yeah. in a way because I know it's our answers yeah. or our solutions probably aren't the most practical for the universities. In terms so of I money? Know, yeah, prob yeah, probably just time and time and resources and that sort of thing. But I think like as Damo was saying, it's a bit better now. But when we did it, I sort of on reflection, I see that, sports science, exercise science degree is sort of like a pathway degree in that you can't, like there are jobs out there that you can get and it's not to say that, you know, you do that degree and you graduate and you can never find a job. There definitely are. But I think it's very, very narrow in what you can get out of it and a lot of the time you need to do further study um, and to do something more specialised. And I think even like particularly when I got frustrated in third year when, we were learning about stuff that I knew I didn't want to do when, when I graduated. It would have been good to use that third year. I, I understand the first and second year. It needs to be pretty broad because you need to sort of learn those foundational skills and that foundational knowledge. But once you get into that third year and you're still sort of only getting a little nibble of an area here and a nibble of an area there and you're not doing anything specialised and it would have been good to get that, I think. And as Damo said, that at Deakin, they're doing that 
SNC stream, that SNC major, um, which is probably a good step in the right direction. But still, I think that if universities could offer specific courses, like I'm sure, like for I think for all of us, we were never really interested in the clinical exercise physiology side of things, but I'm sure there were students who were from the start and it would have been good, I'm sure, for them. They had no interest in what we were interested in. So I'm sure mm. they would have liked to have started to get down that specialised path a bit earlier as well. And I think that that's probably the main thing and I know that's probably not exactly practical or ideal from the university standpoint, but I think that um, it probably saves a lot of students a lot of time a lot of money. Mm. I, I think a couple of ways you could go about it perhaps is that um, like potentially making the course an additional year longer and then in that yeah. fourth year you can really go and it might be that you need to do half of the year in a the entire trimester spent in a practicum setting and you get to pick in, in a, a field that you want to go into in the first year the first half of the year spent specializing in that uh, the only other thing I can really think of is a lot of universities, as you said, Rob, advertise these partnerships with organisations and clubs, but don't really utilise them or not for students' sake. A lot of it's for research-based, but I could imagine, imagine getting the SNC coach or sports scientist from one of these clubs that comes in and does a guest lecture or a guest practical session and you actually, they give an applied sense to the course rather than being that research base i think that's something that could be done obviously it costs money and it's hard to get them in at a particular time but that's something that universities could look at doing now obviously it's not all completely doom and gloom like we don't want to like spin you know negativity um however like it's it's a big decision to make to go into like you know these particular degrees and they do uh cost money although the hex does help out so it's important you sort of make it uh make the right decision for you but there are some good things as well like you do um obviously a lot of practical stuff which is really good and so there's a lot of opportunities that you can um try and sort of hone your craft in terms of communicating with people and and, and you basically get a free hit at coaching people within your class you know, it doesn't matter if it, don't, it doesn't work out because you know they're just basically another student so there's not real any pressure in that front that you know um you're going to stuff something up particularly you know with um <laughs> Uh, athletes that are at elite levels and stuff. So there are like there are good things about these courses in terms of the practical stuff. They're a lot you know practical nature and and you will get some um, decent sort of practicum practicum placements as well. So some obviously I know VU from experience do have a lot of industry partnerships that they have allotted placements for. So for that um, um, reasoning that they are pretty good. Um, but you know there you are, it is important that you sort of realise what um, is it what you're actually getting yourself into as well, I guess. But obviously myself coming from more of a research background compared to, to Damon and Sean, I've got you know, a few more papers in the works than they do at the moment, so that's good. Um, uh, but, yeah, so from that point of view, if you're really inclined to you know, experiments and, and doing all that sort of stuff, like, you know, writing up research proposals and drafts and, and all that sort of stuff, then university is the way to go for you. There's no other way around that. So if you want to become a lecturer or you like that idea of, you know, trying to improve different areas of whether it's, you know, physiology or sports performance, sports tech, then you do need postgraduate research qualifications to do that. So there's no other way around that. So if that's what your idea is of a dream uh, career and a dream goal, and, and to be honest, it's pretty lucrative. Like there is a lot of money in being a good lecturer. Like there's no uh, bones about that. You will be on 100 plus if, 
you know, you become a decent lecturer. So it's a good pathway if you want to choose it. And of course, you need university for that. So it's all doom and gloom. But coming from our previous expectations of elite sports science and, and it's going to take us to the to the dreamland of, you know, being a, a head honcho at a, at a good club, then there's a, a bit of a, a disconnect there. But obviously there are, um, in terms of research pathways, it's the, the way you need to go. All right, boys, so the next uh, little discussion point that we've got and I've drafted up here is what we would do differently if we had our time back. Now, I know Damo probably wouldn't go to so many uh, after-hours um, events in terms of, you know, rocking up to prax and, and shoots a little bit dusty and, and all that sort of stuff, so that might be his first one. But what would we do differently uh, to enhance our career path knowing what we know now? Yeah, I think I looking back on it, I look back on it quite a bit, is getting into some sort of practicum experience or an internship a bit earlier in the degree. As you said, Rob, I probably enjoyed the festivities of university a little bit too much in the early years, um, <laughs> including including an exchange overseas, which I probably could have utilised a little bit better um, in terms of the university side of things and getting connections and potentially, you know, interning while I was overseas. Um, but certainly I probably left it a little bit late. I didn't really um, get into the practicum side of things until really like the end of the second year, start of the third year, um, which automatically puts you behind a little bit in terms of the experience. So when you come out of the undergraduate degree, I sort of only had maybe 12 to 18 months experience and a lot of it was pretty basic sort of stuff. Whereas, you know, if you get into it in your first year um, and then second year you move into a bit better role and then third year you're almost, you know, running a local footy clubs um, program or something like that if you've started at that level and then when you're out of there you've got three years experience instead of being sort of 12 months experience and fighting against all the other people that did get started so that's that's something that i probably look back on and would do slightly differently but um look so it when, is what it is so, so for people listening you you're talking about practice so what are you talking about in terms of practical experience what specifically are you referring to there in terms of like practicums and placements and internships what specifically about that do you wish you had more exposure to yeah, so I think from strength and conditioning is the pathway that I've gone down. So, um, coaching. yeah, coaching, getting involved like from an earlier part. Like I, I coached sporting teams during the first year or two. So I, I wasn't um, as if I didn't have any coaching experience at all, but specializing probably in that area of um, strength and conditioning earlier. So I think any coaching is good coaching. Um, and that's something that everyone will tell you that's in the industry. It's good, but probably you know coaching the under under eight soccer at the local club and um milo mm. cricket and stuff like that it does give you good skills but in terms of the stuff that will get you the job later on in in the snc field i probably didn't touch on that early enough yeah that's good and then, so sean do you feel the same i think a lot of people sort of feel like that i don't know you didn't mind a few beverages as well um at the uni bar so maybe if you want to touch on your experiences yeah, I'm a bit the yeah. same as Damo. Um, I probably as well didn't start to seek out that practical experience until end of second year when I knew that that sort of um, placement that we had to do, the mandatory placement, was was coming up. And I what? Sort of sorry, Sean, but, sorry, Sean, but why is that? Is that because you feel like you don't have enough knowledge to put yourself out in the field? Is it you don't feel confident enough with what you already know or do you need to know more? Like, What do you think held you back during that time? Um, 
I think a little bit of that, and if I'm honest with myself, looking back was probably a little bit of laziness and a little bit of sort of um, not having that initiative, I think. Um, But, yeah, I think that that because you're not very specialised in that sense as well, I think like I I did start to apply for things and um, it was one of those things where the university experience wasn't enough even for these yeah. internships and the the unpaid voluntary roles. Um, and looking back, I think that, you know, I probably should have looked to help out at, you know, some local clubs, whether it be like as a sports trainer or something like that or just yep. sort of get your get your face around and get your hands dirty a bit and um, just try and, try and get involved wherever you can. Rob, I think you did a few things like that where you volunteered at some yeah. events and some, some fun runs or something, didn't you? Yeah, I did actually. Uh, first one I did was the Ironman, Melbourne Ironman back in the day, which was good. Handed out Gatorades and, and took a few home with me as well, which was good. Um, but, yeah, no, so Sean said a few good things. I, was, I wanted to write them down so I didn't forget. But the first one Sean said uh, that I, of note for me personally was he said the idea of a sports trainer as well. So that's an interesting point. And then he also said about local uh, level clubs. So, um there's two really good takeouts from there, from um, from there. So, like Sean said, I got in early. So, I reckon I was in the first year when I really got stuck in. And I need to do a few things. So, my first port of call was Sandringham VFL, and it was like a like performance analysis, sort of coding, doing stats and stuff, which was really good. So, I started there, but it was a perfect lead-in, I reckon, to where like the dominoes started to fall because it was VFL. So, I weren't asking for a whole heap in terms of what you know, your qualifications were. So, it was easier to get into, but I did a lot of stuff there because they didn't really have anyone else. So they had a lot more responsibility. So I could learn sports code, make mistakes using sports code, do some stats, do all that sort of stuff. So I got hands-on experience that I wouldn't have got if I was just trying if I was banking on an AFL team later on. So then that's basically started the dominoes to fall after that. So because of that experience with sports code and doing all that applied stuff, then applied at the VIS, got in there because I knew how to use all that sort of stuff as well. So again, starting lower is not something that you should feel bad about. Um, so, you know, you shouldn't feel bad. And there's a and there's a, there's a, a bit of a, um, a thing in our industry as well about, you know, working for tracksuits and, you know, walking around and, you know, with your chest out because you're wearing a particular tracksuit. So if you're just starting out, there's absolutely no shame in going to your VFLs or even below that. If they've got good technology and infrastructure that you can use and apply, then that's worth its weight in gold. So don't feel bad that your mates at Collingwood or, or wherever they are, because the chances are they're stuck behind about half a dozen other people, so they don't have that same exposure you do. So that's, from what Sean said there, that's a perfect way to start. So um, that's what I did, and it, I reckon it helped me get to where I was because, as I said, the dominoes fall, so I went from VIS there, worked hard at VIS, and, and from my one of my honest supervisors, and then got into the storm from there. So that all stemmed back from that first year where I went to the VFL. Yeah. It wasn't particularly glamorous, but uh, as you realise, none of it is. And then you just work and build from there. And then the second part, Sean said about the sports trainer as well. Again, that's a great entry into anything because as you work at the elite level in teams, if you are multi-talented and have a lot of different skills and you're worth your weight in gold, particularly in the current the current climate with football department spending is reducing at the elite level. So if you can strap and you can train, you SNC coach sports science, if you can do all that sort of stuff, then I guarantee you you're going to be a lot better off uh, than someone who's – um, a specialist in one particular area. So that's two pieces of really good advice there that stem from Sean. 
I was probably more inclined to do the first one, working at the sublet and then building up from there. Do you do you think though, Rob? So I I was having a think about this, and um, I think there's a bit of pressure on that you jump at any opportunity that presents itself to you, especially when you're in those situations. Um, obviously, there's weighing up: do I go and fill up? drink bottles and pick up cones at the professional club for the badge on it or do I go at that satellite level and I I was thinking back on this and I got pretty lucky with my internship so I was at Box Hill in the soccer did the juniors and then sort of just fell into the senior program but what I found was looking back on it I go well it was really good good in terms of experience but the room for progression and transition after that was actually quite Mm. poor because of the supervisors and the people around. So I just got lucky and ended up in a role. But in terms of networking and building from there, it actually was really difficult afterwards because I didn't really have a reference from anyone other than maybe a coach, which then getting into an SNC field, it's quite difficult if you're only getting a reference from a a technical coach rather than an SNC coach. So I think it's if you can, you've got to think about it in multiple platforms like going to a big club or like in your case, a VFL club is actually quite big. Your network you grew from there probably really did help you, didn't it? Uh, well, so VFL, when I this was about five years ago, that was a different landscape back then. So it wasn't like it is now because the VFL's changed, basically changing into AFL teams that have two reserve sides. That's what the VFL is sort of turning into now. Back then it was more of an actual sort of, you know, Williamstown, Sandringham, Port Melbourne and all that sort of stuff. They didn't really have – they weren't as, as as disadvantaged as what they are now. So a bit of a different landscape back then, but you, I think you pointed an interesting one about um, you know, selecting these internships as well. I remember a previous supervisor of mine, I won't say the institution, told me that I shouldn't say no to anything at that level, and I disagreed with that then and I disagree with that now because as Damon sort of alluded to then, you can be taken advantage of very easily and – I think you raised that point about, you know, if you're filling up water bottles and all that sort of stuff at a bigger club and eventually lead you somewhere, is that worth it? You've got to weigh up whether that is or not. That's for you to decide ultimately. I can tell you it's not and I could be wrong because if you meet someone there and you're a good person and all that sort of stuff, like half of success is turning up, they say. And some of that is true. I've had instances that where you just turn up and you're a good person, you work hard, and then it's easy because you're there accessible. Do you want to do this? And so – Eventually, like, there's no – and that's the thing. There's no gold standard pathway to all this. There's a lot of people that got lucky. You know, a lot of people just knew we were at the right place at the right time, and that's the common theme throughout this industry is that if you're in the right place and, you know, you're a decent person, then you might actually get something out of it. So I don't think that there's any particularly – I don't want to say particularly bad internships because there are some that will just be dead ends, but – if you're smart enough and you can see the people around there, so maybe Damo, like Damo said about, you know, technical coaches and, and there's people above you. So maybe if you can be a bit more strategic, but if it's your first internship as well, you, you can't be a chooser. Like, I mean, you can't, beggars can't be choosers in that front. So I'm not sure. Sean, have you got anything to add, to, add on that? Because it's an interesting yeah, point. Yeah. I'm not really sure. It is interesting. Honest. Like I was sort of in that boat where I was choosing between an internship at a – Strength, sort of like a strength and conditioning facility. They had a, a sort of a partnership with a, a high school that had like sporting programs mm-hmm. um, and an AFL club uh, in Richmond. So, mm-hmm. 
I ended up choosing Richmond. Um, and as it turned out, it didn't really, it didn't lead to anything directly. Um, that experience still helped me get some other things, but with yeah. sort of, um, I didn't get anything out of sort of people I knew or with within the club. But I, it's interesting. I think if if I this is all hypothetical, but I think if I had have yep. turned that down, I think today I would have been like, shit. What what would have happened if I had have said yes? Like, yes. Yeah. It's all. It's all. It's all fantasy and all mm. sort of mm. that sort of thing. But it's I don't know. If like if if you're if you've got the opportunity and you're in the position to take on both, then then by all means do that. But um, yeah, there's always, there's always going to be pros and cons, and you sort of got to weigh up what's going to give me the best chance to get where I want to be. And only really you can answer that. Um, and it's sort of it's hard because there's no you know, can't, can't predict the future. And all you can do Absolutely. is, as you said, Rob, is show up every day and. Yep. Put hundred percent in, and sort of things things will either take care of itself or it won't work out. And if it doesn't work out, then you can sort of look back and say that you put everything you had into it, and you just try. Yeah, well, there's, a, there's an old saying: the harder you work, the luckier you get. Um, which is hopefully hopefully true for the people out there that are on the grind at the moment, and uh, and you know, just and giving it their best. Um, the th- and what I think, Sean, you just said was a good point there. Um, I know we're probably pushing time on this particular topic, but um, is that you don't be afraid to make mistakes either because you, like you're young, you don't really know how, the, how, how it works and there's a lot of governance and structure around things. So don't be afraid to make mistakes. And and generally the things in life, if I can get very phil- like philosophical, are that it's the things you don't do that you regret. So if, for, me, inst- uh, for me personally, in this particular instance, I always regret to this day not doing a semester abroad like Damo did in America because I know that that college system is, you know, that, that's a, a it's a good swap in terms of, you know, going over to NCAA Div 1 college somewhere and, and getting your hands dirty in their S&C department there for a semester. That would have been the perfect opportunity because you wouldn't have to pay anything in terms of your fees because of, you know, in terms of like the reciprocal arrangements in terms of like the units you're doing. So obviously there's a bit of an additional cost, but um but I regret that every day, not doing that, because another exposure, another experience, and again, it's another person, like another person, to get yourself in front of. So, um, yeah. All right, boys. So now that we've uh, discussed our lives and you know, basically um, indulged our own stories, for the people out there, what sort of tips would you give um, to help them along their career path, wherever it may be, but uh, particularly starting from a undergrad sports science degree? What's something that you give? Um, someone out there right now. So for me, if I was going to recommend uh, any new sports science students or current sports science students to get your Cert 3 and 4 in fitness um, and work as a personal yeah. trainer. So I don't know. I know when, when we were at Deakin, we could get our Cert 3 through the yeah. university and we had to yeah. do Cert 4 independently. So I don't know where sort of that's at in terms of Deakin or other universities. Um, but get that done if you can. Work as a personal trainer, particularly if you want to get into the strength and conditioning field because I think as we sort of spoke about before, any coaching is good coaching. And don't – we spoke about this again as well. Don't sort of fixate on the level of the person you're coaching or the level of the team you're coaching at. Just get as much experience as you can. And you often learn the more lessons in – 
those sort of environments where you don't have yeah. all the resources or you're not working with the perfect athlete because athletes uh, in general are pretty good movers. If you get 45-year-old John from down the road in for a session, he's probably not going to move as well and that's really going to challenge you and that's how you develop as a coach when you have to adapt, sort of improvise and that sort of thing. So I think Cert 3 and 4 in fitness, work as a personal trainer, get some some of that hands-on mm. experience and that can sort of serve you well um, for the rest of the rest of your degree and sort of after you graduate as well. And earn some money while you're doing it too. That's Absolutely. Not bad. And then again, you get yourself in front of a few people that you don't know could be anyone. So you don't know from there. Where are you, Damo? Uh, I've got two quick ones. So I talked about it a bit earlier, but it would be to get hands-on experience as early as possible. So whether that's as an SNC coach, coaching, sports scientist, get on sports code, any of that technology, um, as you said, Rob, go down to your local club, uh, a club that you've played at, and just ask if you can, you know, jump on and, and help out with mm. something. Um, we all did the sports trainer. That's how I got to start at a club was just doing that. Um, it's always handy to know how to tape an ankle. And as you said, um, having those extra skills is always useful. And that's probably the second point to being able to be a bit of a dual trader. I know, like in my experiences, if you've got some sort of background in the sport or you can help out with the technical training. Um, you know, when I was at the Renegades feeding balls, bowling at training, hitting catches, um, strapping an ankle at training as well when the physio was busy, that sort of stuff, um, you make yourself a little bit more dispensable, uh, indispensable and um, yeah. you're more valuable to have around. So if you can do multiple things, the club's going to go, oh, hey, he's not just the S&C or he's not just the data guy. He can actually help out so you know if we've got to go on our way to it we're going to bring him because he can do multiple things and we don't have to pay multiple people to do it which is what a lot of clubs are worried about is how much it's going to cost to have you on mm. if you're just specializing in one area yeah absolutely so i think i'll i'll sum this up purely looking for maybe a sports science point of view because the boys there have, have covered some good snc um, style tips as well so if you're aspiring sports scientist and you want to you know, get into the elite sector then the two things I'd think about doing are becoming a jack-of-all-trades, as Damo and Sean have alluded to. So you know, whether that's taping an ankle, whether that's knowing how to teach a squat or deadlift pattern, anything like that. So um, particularly you know, the, the economic climate in the next few years with team sports, I don't think there's going to be huge increases in football, de uh, football department staff. So, again, you're going to be competing with other people. So if you can have many different skill sets and are proficient at them, then you're going to be um, valuable anyway. I particularly know that from experience at NRL, NRL level as well. And then the second point is that I uh, touched on this briefly before. If you're a sports scientist, teach yourself how to code in terms of R Studio, R Programming, Python, whatever it is, SQL, and practice that every night and see if you can write your own R Shiny applications and all that sort of stuff as well because the way sports science is going, it's becoming a big data industry. So uh, learn how to code get your teeth into it early because then if you can do your own stuff, if you can, even if it's exporting data from your Garmin and just doing stuff with that, chopping it up, having a look at it, you'll be worth your weight, you'll be worth your weight in gold. And again, like Dana said, you've been indispensable. So if you can code and if you know how to do a bit of data analytics, or if you want to take a short course in that, then again, do that as well. And then like the trend as well, you're seeing a lot of graduate certificates in, in data analytics and stuff around that because that's the way uh, the courses are going. But, um, there's plenty of stuff online that you can do for free. So get on top of that. Uh, well, that's about all we've got time for for today's episode. So hopefully um, if you're a recent graduate of sports science or you're just going in that 
you get something out of that. It's all doom and gloom as well. So there's always light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so whatever you choose in your career, just work hard at it. Uh, work on your networks as well. Get on LinkedIn, start contacting people as well. Um, even if you want to meet up on Zooms as well. So there's always things you can do to help advance your career. So you never know um, what the right path is. So just go ahead and do it. In the future episode as well of this particular roundtable, we'll maybe discuss about the sports science and strength and conditioning industry as it is. So there'll be further discussion around that topic that we didn't quite get to today. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Uh, in the meantime, there's always some trikes, 180s to keep yourself entertained. Um, so if you want to see the three of us uh, duke it out, and various forums, and please do. There's a few contentious topics in there, and there's still a bit of heat and animosity between the three of us over some decisions. So you can go check that out, and there's some DIYs there as well if you want to learn how to do a yo-yo or, or run some MAS or even just watch Damo run it. It's even better. Um, until uh, on that front, though, you can check us out on, on YouTube on the channel, so like, subscribe, do that sort of stuff, and, and on Spotify, Apple iTunes, all that as well. Uh, Shawnee, what about the socials, mate? Yeah, if you search for Triax Performance on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. The talk. It is beautiful. And Damo. Still doing his best work there. You'll find us. You'll find us there. Absolutely. Yep. Damo in the old-fashioned way, mate. Yeah, so email is uh, admin at triaxperformance.com and the website is triaxperformance.com. I just want to add as well, you know, worst case scenario, you can start a business like Triax so if, if it all goes <laughs> very, very well. <laughs> yeah, that's not bad either. Actually, yeah, you can, uh, yeah, or you can just start your own YouTube channel, listen to yourself talk. Um, a few people like that, particularly in this industry. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Oh, well, that's, uh, that's about it for, for today's episode, but we appreciate you uh, tuning in and listening to us and, and appreciate all the support. So, uh, until next time, we'll catch you later from the uh, Triax team.